Amen. You can grab a seat. Thank you for being with us this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. And today we're going to be in Psalm 50. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Psalm 50. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we're going to put it on the screen. Please don't panic. We'd love to give you a Bible on your way out. And I want to ask you, I want to put you back because I know the answer to this question. It's kind of rhetorical. Really, I'm just trying to get you in the headspace of, have you ever been inspected yeah, we all have. You know, maybe you've been expected, inspected uh, medically. You go in for a checkup. It's kind of awful, right? I went for, uh, I got a lot of moles all over my body, and I go to see a dermatologist somewhat regularly. And when you go see a dermatologist, they inspect your dermis. You know, they look at all over your skin, <laughs> and it's humiliating. You know, they just take, like, literally, a magnifying glass and look at all the spots on your body. Very uncomfortable uh, because, you know, maybe you're not proud of your body and you don't want somebody inspecting it. Inspection can be uncomfortable. You've been expected, inspected uh, professionally. You have your job. You do your job as well as you do it, but you got your quarterly review. You've got a point at which the boss looks at the numbers. And maybe you try and goose those numbers, like as you know that review is coming, but, ha, ah, it's pretty intense, right? There's some concern. Maybe you're proud of yourself. Maybe you're just killing it. But for a lot of us, these kinds of moments of inspection, I don't know, they add a lot of anxiety. I think with, with biblical counseling, I'm learning more about biblical counseling. And, and the way that you kind of go about it, you, you do in, inspect people. But instead of like professionally or medically, you're, you're inspecting their you know, relationships or their soul. Maybe you go through and do ask deep questions. You inspect their marriage uh, or their parenting, or just their relationship with God. It can be intense. I th- my experience is that most people tend to be um, against that. They, they tend to be slow to say yes to that kind of thing. It sounds great. On paper, people say yes. But when it comes time to actually book the appointment, people can be slow to want to do that because it can be so uncomfortable. I, uh, have the same sort of questions as I read through Scripture. This past week, as part of my just Bible reading plan, I was in Ezekiel, and he was talking about God's judgment on the leaders of Israel for their laziness, for their abuse of the people of Israel. And God, I mean, you know, as a pastor, in some way, a leader of God's people, it's horrifying. It's incredibly scary. It makes you wonder, this inspection that's coming. And the reason I want you to think that way, and the reason I want to kind of bring that up is because Psalm 50 begins with, it it ponders the truth of God's inspection of his people. And you just start reading it, it's possible to just kind of read it as a psalm, to let the kind of poetic language kind of lull you a little bit. But if you ask yourself what's actually happening in this psalm, this isn't flowery language. This is really scary. Let's read it. Psalm 50, starting in verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He doesn't keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he might judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. What's being said? 
God the Holy One is calling his covenant people together. And he calls on all heavenly beings and all the rest of the earth to see this judgment as the Holy One with fire before him and a hurricane all around him steps forward to evaluate, to inspect his people. Now the whole rest of the psalm kind of works through this, but just take a moment to let the kind of yowza of it all just kind of hit you for a second, that, that God is calling to inspect you. Are you ready for that kind of inspection? As I read through Ezekiel and it zeroes in on me, I get really anxious. As I look at this psalm and the way that it kind of zeroes in on us, I'm thankful because the rest of the psalm gives us the way in which he's going to go about inspecting us. It gives us kind of a way that we can together sort of understand how, how, do, we, how do we judge each other? Hmm. Not judge in the sense of Matthew, where he's talking about the way that we look down on one another, evaluate each other so that we can put ourselves above one another. We're not talking about that. But if I'm going to be a leader of you, if you're going to be a leader in your family, if you're going to be a leader in your community group, if you're going to be a leader out in the community, you got to have some way to evaluate what's going on around you. you got to have some clear idea of what health is if you're going to lead people from disease to a full life. I look at this psalm and I think there's a, there's a little bit of it that gets really intense and we think about salvation and we think about whether or not we're going to pass that judgment, that inspection. But I don't know that we have to be that dramatic. I don't think we need to be less than that. It does go all the way up to your whole status before God. But I also think we can get more practical with it and get excited about the fact that God is giving us a, a metric. He's given us a way to say, are, are things going well here or not? I hope that if you've been in church for some period of time, you've started to kind of see past that, that metric, that measurement for the church's health, which is just numbers. How many people can we gather? How much money can we raise? Those are measurable numbers. We keep track of those at Hope Church. Healthy things grow. But is that the only measurement? There were times in Jesus' ministry where thousands were around him. There were also times in Jesus' ministry when those thousands went away. Would you say, well, okay, Jesus, now we can learn from this. Let's go back to multiplying bread and stop talking so much about the blood and body stuff because everybody was into the free food. Thousands came for that, but then you start with the uh, prophetic language, and then, you know, you're just left with these idiots. So, so what if, you know, like church growth, right? What's the real metric? The real metric is this heart understanding of love. I, I, I want to kind of put all of this into um, a kind of specific analogy. So when I was trying to get us through seminary and, and trying to earn some money beforehand, I worked at this... Um, assembly plant that was up kind of the supply chain for Ford. We built the, the piece of your seat that connects from the seat to the, the rest of the car. So the part that, you know, and makes you go back and forward in your seat, we were the ones that assembled that and then shipped it off to the next group. And because I had a college degree, I was allowed to be the inspector at the end of the line, which is not a good job. They just gave me that because 
I don't know, whatever, you know, like they, they talked in a really flowery way. My uncle knew the guy that owned the plant, so I was like, oh, I'm going to get like special treatment and a really good job. Oh, no, 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 it was terrible. But, but my, my job was at the end of the line, the part would come through when it was full. So it was the heaviest it was going to be. And that's probably why they put me there, because I was just bigger than some of the other people. But, but my job was to take a, a Sharpie and go through, and I had, for each of the different models, you had different things you were supposed to check. And I would mark off that I had checked that there were screws on each of the pieces holding this tech to it. And then I would flip it over. And then I would have to look and make sure that there were bolts holding the bracket that your seatbelt connects to, to the rest of the car. Now, you can imagine that was the only thing that I really had to check. Everything else, you know, it's great to have those screws in. But the bracket that holds a person to the car in the case of an accident... That's the one thing that really has to be right. So even though I used a Sharpie on everything else, that bracket, I actually had to take a wrench and push to make sure that not only is the bracket on the bolts there, but the bolts were tight. That was my one job, really. And then you take the thing and sling it into a case, and then it moves on down the line. I was the inspector, but there was a day where I got inspected. So it was people from Ford that came to this little plant to make sure that the parts were up to snuff. So those people were there with the plant manager and our line manager. So there's four managers, each in increasing levels of importance, that are watching me inspect the part. Now, apparently, they didn't really know their business very well because I was nervous about the inspection and sort of doing muscle memory, trying to do the stuff that you're supposed to do, but I forgot to check the bracket. And not only did I forget to check it, the people that had built the piece and brought it on down hadn't tightened it, so it was loose. Now, again, the inspector people, I guess, just didn't really know their business because they kept moving on, and I passed. But after they left, my line manager looked at me, and she showed me that it was loose. She didn't say anything because she didn't have to. Oh. And I wasn't really worried about losing the job. It was a very low-paying job. <laughs> but, you know, you're worried about safety. This bracket is what holds a person to the car in the case of an accident. And it's the only thing that makes a seatbelt work. And I was going to be the faulty part that allowed that faulty part to what? Kill somebody? The reason I want to think about that inspection is because I want us to think about this moment with God. I want us to understand, what do we do with the fact that we failed the inspection? I mean, because really that's what's going on here. God's calling his covenant people together, and he's not calling them together to pat him on the head. I mean, his description of him coming in judgment is not him coming like the Lord of the feast. It's him coming with fire before him and tempest around him. He's coming as judge of all things. This is a wake-up call kind of judgment. And as he comes to bring this judgment to us, as he comes and shows us our lack, we got two possible responses that are wrong. And one that's right. That's what the psalm gives us. So that's what we're going to go through. I want to think about these two that are wrong responses and one that's right. You've been caught. You, you, you did not pass inspection. Now what do you do? The first wrong thing you can do is bribe him. Lady looks at me, shows me that it's wrong. I could say, okay, it is wrong. But what about 20 bucks? That's an answer. Look what the people do in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. Again, this is not like Lord of the Feast kind of let's, let's hang out judgment. This is you have broken my law judgment. I am God, your God. He's talking to the covenant people. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. It's not that you've given up doing what you're supposed to do. 
It's the way you're going about it. Uh Uh-oh. This isn't one of those sermons that you get to look around and say, I'm so glad that I'm here and we can talk about the people who aren't and should be. This is for the people who are here. He continues, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are already mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Seems like he puts a lot of words into this one idea, this one concept, that he doesn't really need our sacrifice. Why does he underline this so thoroughly? Well, it's because you and I spend a lot of time trying to bribe this guy. The idea of a sacrifice is that you've sinned against a holy God. And so you go about, as part of his covenant people under the law of Moses, you go about... Paying for? Is that what you would do as you bring a sacrifice up? Did you do something that required you to pay a debt? Well, kind of. The idea was that this animal would be your substitute and the animal would be killed instead of you being killed for breaking God's covenant law. And the blood would be thrown against the altar, the animal would be burned, and the smoke would rise up. And there was this picture that you were given of a substitute dying on your behalf. That was a picture. Now, it was possible, and this is the wrong way of seeing things that the people of Israel had developed and that you and I have absolutely fallen into. It was possible to say, instead of this picture whereby God in his mercy forgives me and holds back his judgment, I am instead somehow buying God off. As though I committed a little light adultery, but God's hungry And I've got some lambs, so why don't we do a deal? (laughs) Now, that sounds really silly. But do you understand that that's what you and I are doing all the time? We're absolutely doing it all the time. Here's how I'm going to prove it. There's a guy named Brian Chappell. He's a leader within the Presbyterian Church. And he wrote a book about this concept, this idea about grace and works and how all these things fit together. But he says... If we try to force our way into God's heart by deeds, the things that we might try to do for God, he must respond. Do not forget that what I actually require of you is not sacrifice, but law, that you cause no sin, confront other sin, and forgive any sin. And even if you had met these standards perfectly, though you have not, You would have only done your basic duty, and I would owe you no special blessing for that. Think about that for a second. Undercut as fully as you possibly can the idea that you can bribe God. What he said there is that what you owe God is perfect obedience. If you then try to use half obedience to pay for the fact... (laughs) that you have never had perfect obedience, it's just as stupid 
as thinking that the God of all things, who is self-sustaining and creator of all, needs your cattle. It can't work. But we always try it. Why do we keep trying it? Martin Luther is a guy who's really famous in Christian history for making the point that we are saved by grace and not by works. He had a Galatians moment, Paul and Peter moment, but it was in the Middle Ages and it was him versus the Catholic Church. But he is known, he, he, he changed a lot of things historically in Western civilization by making the biblical point that Romans and all of Scripture makes that we're saved by grace and not by works. And yet, decades after having been the guy who did this, the guy who kind of split a lot of things up by, by maintaining this truth despite all the pressures, he said, I myself have been preaching and cultivating it, meaning the message of grace, for almost 20 years, and I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God so that I may contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. And I still cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace, yet I know this is what I should and must do. I don't know if you ever think this, but we say this kind of thing at Hope Church a lot. Do you know why? Because you still need to hear it. If you were Martin Luther... In all of his genius, having on his back all of the stripes that he took for this truth, after decades of brilliant study and sacrifice, you would still need to hear this message. You're not Martin Luther. I love you. But you're just not that great. You need to hear this message. You've got to hear again that you can't bribe him. The salvation that God gives is a gift because of his goodness and because of his mercy. Derek Kinder is a commentator on a lot of Old Testament books, but on the Psalms, he's really great. He says the giving, the salvation is on his side. It's ours to receive it with the delighted thanks and obedience it deserves. See, our obedience towards God, it doesn't earn us anything. It can't. Jesus in his parables, he said in Luke 17, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Now, we don't all have servants, so you may not chuckle at that like you should. But if you have a servant who is a servant, when he's out there doing his job and comes inside, you don't applaud. This is the point that Jesus is making. He's a servant. You don't come in and say, come at once and recline at table as though you are now going to give him your spot. Will he not rather say to the servant, prepare supper for me, get yourself cleaned up, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? That's exactly what he should say. The guy's a servant. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Do you keep expecting Jesus to say something different through that whole parable? He doesn't. You are a servant. He may treat you as a child. He may adopt you and put you in the incredible inheritance that he has in Christ. But that's mercy. You didn't earn that. 
Your obedience does not buy you anything. It can't. So we can't try to bribe him. The second wrong way that we go about interacting with this holy God, though, you don't, you don't bribe him and you don't blind yourself. This is the other thing he says, the other half of the psalm. He says, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. And you thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Does that sound like the Psalms? Psalms are supposed to be does walking by still waters, right? <laughs> no, this is God with fire and a hurricane saying he is going to tear you apart. Why? The other way that we can look at our life and look at God and his holiness and try to operate with him that's wrong is we can try to blind ourselves. We can try and make it right for us to do things that he hates. This, this idea would be that I, I would try to like somehow look at my manager when I've created this deadly situation with that buckle on the, the seat situation at that assembly plant. And I could look at her and I could try and bribe her. Or I could look at her and say, like, What? If she looked at me and showed me the loose buckle, this reaction towards God over our sin and the horrible situation we've created would just be to go, what do you mean? I don't see a problem. That's what these people were doing. These are God's covenant people. These are not people that are far from God. These are people that are part of his community. They have taken his covenant on their lips. And he gives them this question. What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Because, and then he walks through how their lifestyle totally walks against everything that God stands for and preaches. Instead of being his and following like they should, they hate discipline and refuse his words. They, they like thieves and adulterers. Now, there's a way that you can read this where you get really judgmental towards Christians and say, Oh, you hypocrites. You're not supposed to hang out with thieves and adulterers. I thought Jesus loved the tax collector. Okay, there's a difference between loving the tax collector despite the fact that he's a tax collector and loving tax collection. Here's what I mean by that. If you see somebody and become friends with them and it turns out that they're an adulterer, it is your Christian duty to continue to love that person. The way that does not help or love that person is to tell them that their adultery is good. And even further, what seems to be happening here is to like them because they're adulterers. To be like, wow, you must be a cool guy to have so many women interested that adultery lifestyle seems pretty wonderful and free. I wonder if maybe, you know, I could kind of live vicariously through you. Let me buy you a drink. Tell me the last story. Do you see the difference? It's totally different. That's what God's describing as us. Now, before you think, like, how could that ever happen? Just think for a moment about your entertainment choices. I appreciate that groan. I hope that means that you're understanding what I'm saying. Think for a moment about your entertainment choices. 
We all have this idea of the sort of like fuddy-duddy Christian from the 50s and 60s who would rail against everybody for trying to watch rated R movies. And we say, man, you, you don't understand. Some of this stuff is great. And why would not watching a radar movie somehow mean that I'm righteous before God? And we call them out on all this starched hypocrisy. And yet, are they wrong? Isn't there some part of you that enjoys some of the art that you enjoy because it portrays for you, it allows you to kind of live vicariously through characters who are enjoying things that secretly you want to enjoy? Like, just rabid greed. Like, just kind of wild lust. Do you see? I, th- I think God's got us here. I think he's hurting us here. I think he's showing us what we're really like. And the reason that it's so deadly is because sin has an effect. Look again at verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent, and so you thought that I was one like yourself. See, it's possible when we start preaching and all this stuff and telling you about grace that you say, okay, well, it doesn't really matter if I sin or not because I can always just ask God for forgiveness. And he's such a kind God that he'll definitely just sweep all this away. But that doesn't show you what sin is really like. Sin is not just something you did and he's paying for. It's not just a debit card and you're running up this debt and God, because he's got infinite riches, is just going to take care of it later. Sin also has an effect on you. It's much more like a drug that you're taking. And when you drink this poison, it actually kills something in you. These covenant people, because they went and did things that God hated, had this effect on them. It had a blinding effect on them that allowed them to think that maybe God thought this was cool. Maybe he was okay with it. Maybe they could continue to do it. And it gets to the point where they trade God and the covenant and everything else for this itch that they keep trying to scratch. Sin has this effect. It blinds you. It dumbs you down. It makes it impossible for you to receive the only salvation that you can ever get. If you stop saying that what you're doing is wrong, then you don't see any need for a savior. Do you see that? Just like if you bribe him and you you think, I've paid for my sin. I don't have a need for a savior. You undercut any real worship. If you blind yourself and say that the sin that I commit isn't really sin, you undercut your need for a savior. You undercut real worship. Those are the two wrong ways to act towards God, to show love towards God. So what's the right way? Well, look at verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So there's a thanksgiving component, and then there's a work that follows. There's a a lifestyle of praise and a lifestyle of obedience that follows, but it follows from this thanksgiving It follows from this proper means of worship. Go back to Luke and think with me about what Jesus is teaching. In Luke 17, right after he tells this story about the servant, right after he makes it real clear that there's nothing you can do, even perfect obedience is barely what's accepted. It's just what's uh, expected. 
If you lived your life perfectly, he doesn't owe you anything. He just says, okay. (laughs) Thank you, I guess. I mean, you're just still doing what you're supposed to do. You didn't do anything above and beyond. You didn't prove anything. You didn't provide anything. You still just did what you were expected to do. So right after that big parable about how our works don't really earn us anything, Jesus then goes into talking about these um, lepers. It says in verse 12, As he entered a village, Jesus was met by ten lepers. Now, leprosy in the New Testament is not just the skin disease. It's not just the wasting disease. Leprosy also made you unclean ceremonially. Meaning, if you were a Jewish leper, and I think this was leprosy full stop, but if you were a Jewish leper in particular, not only did you have to go outside of the community in order not to infect other people, you had to go outside of the covenant community. You were now unclean. Your uncleanness had to be addressed, had to be fixed, before you could go back before God and his holy people. So leprosy, it wasn't just a medical condition, it was a social condition. It was a total separation. And Jesus is met by these ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices. You were supposed to do this if you were a leper. It was your job under Jewish law to let people know you're a leper so that when they're coming near you, you're supposed to shout out and throw dust up in the air so they know, like, uh-oh, wait a minute, there's a leprosy community over there. But instead of shouting, uh-oh, stay away, they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus, when he saw them, he said to him. Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. This is an important part, but it kind of goes beyond our scope this morning. The point I'm trying to make to you is, you stand before God exactly like these lepers. And you cry out to God for mercy through Christ. And God gives you this mercy through Jesus. You've got a couple of options after that moment of salvation. You can pretend that you somehow earned that cure and keep trying to bribe him off. You can pretend that you never had leprosy. And so you don't really need that much grace. Or you can fall at his feet like this one who is healed. And what's the big difference? What does this guy get? He gets not just healing, he gets Jesus. Do you see the difference? In all of this worship, the job is not to somehow perfectly execute Christian rites. The job is to get him. If you bribe him off, the reason that you might do that is so that he leaves you alone. If you blind yourself to your need of him, the reason that you might do that is so that he leaves you alone. But if you accept that you are a leper in need of healing and he has healed you through Jesus, then not only are you clean, you get him. You should want him. You should erupt in a thankfulness towards him. We talk about this at Hope. I hope you've heard it before. You've got to look up from the gift to The giver. That's the point of all of this. And so let me ask you, is that you? Do you know this? Are you doing this? Have you allowed yourself to fall back into this old pattern? It affects everything. Have you noticed that it's difficult for you to want to serve God and his community? 
You find you're lacking a little motivation? Let me invite you to the root of that problem. You feel like when you look at people that are lost and you think, I, I know that I should care. But you know, I just really don't. Let me invite you to the root of that lack of motivation or compassion. When you look at sin in your own life and you know that you should change, but you don't really care. Let me invite you to look at the root of that lack of desire or compassion. When you hear that the whole of God's law is summed up in the word, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and yet you find that you have not nary a blip of emotional response to the God who saved you, let me invite you to the root of that problem. Brothers and sisters, the only solution is to remind yourself again that when, before you, when you stood before a holy God with your leprosy, with your sin, and God healed you by taking that leprosy on himself, by dying a sinner's death and then rising that you might be with him forever, he did that by his grace from his love. And that your response to him needs to be a thankfulness that will, over time, grow into a genuine love. It'll grow into heaven itself. So what, what's the thing that you're supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to take a minute and really examine yourself. Is it possible that you live your life in one of those first two camps, blinding yourself Pretending that you're not really in that much sin against God, that maybe he doesn't care that much, that maybe he's like us and he kind of enjoys or overlooks sin. Maybe you blinded yourself. And examine yourself. Maybe you're trying to bribe him. Maybe you say to yourself, hey, grace is great, but I don't really need that much of it. I don't find myself overflowing with thankfulness for it because I'll tell you, he's pretty lucky to have me. He's got a great line to some good works through my life. Instead, brothers and sisters, preach to yourself the gospel. The gospel that puts a holy God before a sinful person. The gospel that says that God loves you so much that he came to be a person like you. Take your sin upon himself, die, and then rise. So that through no good works, but just by grace, he could give you that salvation, clean you, and make you his forever. If you've done that, you have to preach that to yourself, to your community, to your family daily that we can argue against the blinding effects of sin. If you've not done that, this is the core of Christianity. This is what separates us from every other religion in the world. There's not a code to follow here. Yeah, there's an obedience that we, we hope you will learn eventually. But salvation is not for the buying. It's for the receiving. Have you received this grace from God? If not, man, we just pray that you would give us the opportunity to think about it with you carefully. Person you came with, somebody else, me, I'd love the honor to just walk you through. What are the reasons that we believe and how does this all work? We pray that you would. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would continue to give us a clear understanding of our sin before you. Lord, we don't want um, to think about hard things or gross things, and we don't want to wallow, but we do want to understand leprosy so that we can be thankful for a cure. Father, I pray that our lives and our, our hearts would overflow with an intense love towards you, that, that 
comes out of our understanding of your grace towards us. Lord, you come in judgment. And we don't have to be perfect to be forgiven. Lord, we just have to be humble. I pray that you would give us the grace to see that great need and to turn from those who are blind towards you to those who are overwhelmed in love with you. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.